Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we're in the middle of a power struggle for cyberspace. That's what Bruce Schneier says he's here to break it all down. PHP gets broken and Pornhub gets hacked, and the disgruntled employee who wiped the router configs on his way out the door. Plus, a great feedback section, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 277 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on July 28th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? That's powered by the incredible... Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello. Hello. I hear you typing right as I come in on you. <laughs> Sorry, chat room. Yeah, chat room. <laughs> Alan, we have a huge show today. There's a lot of show notes in that doc. Yes. I look at that. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, all right. It's I weird. I, you know, when I get assigned to write. Uh, a journal article for the FreeBSD Journal, and they want about three thousand words. It takes me days to come up with three thousand words, but yeah. show notes is like blah, boom, yeah. an hour and a half, and there's three thousand words. Yeah, yeah. You can see how some of those career bloggers could get to a groove, or maybe they could uh, just yep. uh, cram that stuff out. So uh, we're going to start with something that was uh, that was written up by Schneier, the mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bruce Schneier, power in the age of a feudal internet. Yes. Interesting, Alan. Should we start there? Are you ready to jump yes. in? Right. Yep. Let's jump in. Right. So uh, Schneier's article here over at the uh, um, Collaboratory? Uh, it, it's at the very bottom. It's called Mind. It's like the multi something, something. Anyway. We are the anyway. Borg. Uh, what's it said there? Uh, I don't know. In the gray oh, part. Oh, I see. The multi stakeholder multi internet dialogue. <laughs> wow. That is, that's catchy. That rolls right off it's, the tongue, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he says, We're in the middle of an epic battle for power in cyberspace. Oh. On one side are the nimble, unorganized, distributed powers such as dissident groups, criminals, and hackers. On the other side are the traditional, organized, institutional powers such as governments and large multinational corporations. During its early days, the Internet uh, gave coordination and efficiency to the powerless. It made them powerful and seem unbeatable. But now the more traditional institutional powers are winning and winning big. How these two uh, fare long-term and the fate of the majority of the rest of us uh, that don't fall into either of those groups is an open question hmm. and one vitally important to the future of the Internet. Uh, so to unpack that a little bit, he's sort of saying uh, that people, that powers that traditionally weren't uh, as predominant online are more predominant now, and in some of these cases, they're states. Is that essentially yeah, what Yeah, well, it's it more that when the Internet first started, it gave just disorganized groups of people, the ability to organize and become very powerful. And big institutions didn't really, like governments didn't deal Leverage with it. Leverage it, yeah. Uh, now the governments and big corporations are using the internet, and uh, as he explains later, while the internet gave power to the people without very much power, what the internet really does is just amplify the power you have. So your very little amount you have, but when you work as a group, you can make it quite a big amount. Hmm. But if you already have a lot, and then you add the internet, it just makes it even bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah. Hmm. So, okay. uh, Interesting point. In its early days, there was a lot of talk about the natural laws of the internet and how it would empower the masses, upend traditional power blocks, and spread freedom throughout the world. Uh, the international nature of the internet made a mockery of national laws. 
anonymity was easy. Censorship was impossible. Police were clueless about cybercrime. And bigger changes were inevitable. Digital cash would undermine national sovereignty. Citizen journalism would undermine the media, corporate PR, and political parties. Easy copying would destroy traditional movie and music industries. Web marketing would allow even the smallest companies to compete against corporate giants. It really would be a new world order, right? That's what we thought at the beginning of the internet. Mm -hmm. And some of that has actually came to be. You know, we have seen uh, Facebook used to uh, start revolutions in some countries and, and a lot of this, you know, the way movies and TV and so on works has changed a lot because mm-hmm. of the it's, and it seems almost every terrorism event these days has a, a social media component to it. Every activism movement seems to have a social media component to it that's pretty significant. And uh, if you just want to take U.S. politics as an example, uh, both U.S. presidential candidates announced their running mates via Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big, that's a, you know, social, being yeah. social media, for that's a pretty big deal to announce via Twitter. Yep. Uh, it says, uh, on the corporate side, power is consolidating around both vendor-managed user devices and large personal data aggregators. Mm. Uh, so to kind of demystify those two terms, a vendor-managed device mostly means a computer you don't control, like, uh, like your a, cell phone. Like a, like a mobile. Yeah. Uh, and large personal data aggregators are your Facebooks and Twitters. And Googs. Yeah, and Google, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, It's a result of two current trends in computing. First is the rise of cloud computing, meaning that we no longer have control over our data. Our email, photos, calendars, address books, messages, and documents uh, are on servers belonging to Google, Apple, Microsoft, and Facebook, and so on. And second, the rise of vendor-managed platforms means that we no longer have control over our computing devices. We're increasingly accessing our data with iPhones, iPads, Androids, Kindles, Chromebooks, and so on. Yeah. Even Windows 8 and Windows 10 and uh, Apple's Mountain Lion are heading in the direction of less user control and more centralized control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, especially like if you consider their cloud storage options like OneDrive and iCloud, which there you're not even managing the files anymore. You're just putting them in these object databases and they're mounting it to your file system and giving you access right, as long as your credentials are good. There's a point where you know Apple's erasing your local music and saying, oh, well, we have a copy of that in the cloud for you. So you right, part that. of a music service. Th- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. And that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, so Snyder says that uh, I previously called this model of computing feudal. Uh, users pledge allegiance uh, to more powerful companies who, in turn, promise to protect them from both their sysadmin duties and security threats. It's a metaphor that's rich in history and in fiction, and it's a model that's increasingly permeating computing today. Uh, Feudal security consolidates power in the hands of the few. These companies act in their own self-interest. They use their relationships with us to increase their profits, sometimes at our expense. They act arbitrarily, and they make mistakes. You know, we see uh, uh, what's, there was an article a couple weeks ago where Google deleted a, a blogger blog that it decided violated its terms of service and deleted this artist's entire history of everything they'd ever done. And because a lot of the, apparently a bunch of the images were only existed on that blogger, which is kind of their fault. But, you know, we've seen the same thing happen where, you know, uh, Apple's, you've got locked out of your Apple iCloud, iCloud account or something. And they're like, no, we're not giving that back to you. And it's just gone, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, what scares me is also, uh, we have a story later on coming up about uh, LastPass, but there's another example of a password storage system where there's a, an account credential, and well, there's all kinds of services like that, absolutely. But, you know, especially it's about the arbitrary decisions where, you know, at some point, uh, 
you know, somebody was live streaming with Justin.tv and they decided, oh, we're shutting down and, only, and, and we're going to do just Twitch now and it has to be about gaming or we're not streaming it. Mm-hmm. Well, I like how YouTube constantly software. decides that videos that I've had up on YouTube in the Jupiter Broadcasting Channel for five, years. six, seven years are just getting flagged. I get three or four videos from our catalog mm-hmm. pulled a day off of YouTube. Yep. And I, for some reason, all of a sudden, they're in violation because somebody else uploaded something to YouTube and they, they, they flagged it. It's just absolutely frustrating. No control. No no option there. Right. Whereas if it was your own website, you'd have a lot more control over what got pulled up and yeah. pushed out and so on. That's the trade-off for being on their platform. Yep. Uh, government power is also increasing on the internet. Long gone in the days of internet without borders and governments... Uh, Uh, are better able to use the four technologies of social control, surveillance, censorship, propaganda, and use control. Uh, There's a growing cyber sovereignty movement that totalitarian governments are embracing to give them more control, a change that the U.S. opposes because currently the U.S. has substantial control uh, under the current system of how the internet's run. Sure, we like it that way. (laughs) As more uh, more countries are deciding they should have control over their part of the internet, uh, that harms the internet, but you know, at the same time, I don't think the U.S. government should have so much control over the internet either. Uh, and they say, and the cyber war arms race is in full swing, and uh, you know, is further consolidating government power. So he asked, you know, what happened? How in those early internet years did the future go so wrong? Uh, the truth is that technology magnifies power in general, but the rates of adoption are different. The unorganized, the distributed, the marginal, the dissidents, the powerless, the criminal, uh, they can make use of new technologies faster. And when those groups discovered the internet, suddenly they had power. But when the already powerful big institutions finally figured out how to harness the internet for their needs, they had more power to magnify, right? So the internet takes the power you have and makes it bigger. So if you have a lot already, you get more, uh, so while it does give power to the little guys, it gives even more power to the big guys. Uh, um, that's the difference. The distributor were more nimble and were quicker to make use of their new power, while the institutional were slower, but were able to use their power more effectively. So while the Syrian dissidents used Facebook to organize, now the Syrian government uses Facebook to identify sit- uh, dissidents and try to shut them down. Uh, there's another more subtle trend uh, that he uh, Bruce Schneier discusses in his books, uh, Liars and Outliers. Um, if you think of security as an arms race between attackers and defenders, technological advances like firearms, fingerprints, uh, fingerprint identification, lock picks, and radios give one side uh, or the other a temporary advantage. Most of the time, the new technology benefits the attacker first, right? If you come up with a better lock pick, then you have that advantage until everybody replaces their locks with better ones, right? Um, and so on. So it's the quick versus the strong. Uh, to return to the medieval metaphors, you can think of the nimble distributed power, whether marginal, dissident, or criminal, as Robin Hood. And you can think of the ponderous institutional powers, both governments and big corporations, as the sheriff of Nottingham. That's lovely. <laughs> yes. And, you know, sometimes you, you know, depending on your view of it, it, you know, the Robin Hood people are actually criminals that are stealing and maybe need to be stopped. Uh, but <laughs> that, that is, you, you know, they have the advantage of being able to kind of hit and run and be a lot harder to catch because there's just a couple of guys and they're spread out. And yeah. Fall. Yeah. Very much so. <clears throat> so Schneier asked, so who wins? Uh, what type of power dominates in the coming decade? Right now, yeah. it looks like it'll be institutional power. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, this is largely because leveraging power on the internet requires technical expertise, and most distributed power groups don't have that expertise. Those with sufficient technical ability will be able to stay ahead of institutional powers, whether that's you know setting up your own email server, effectively using encryption and anonymity tools, or breaking copy protection. Uh, there will always be technology that are one step ahead of the institutional powers. So our audience. Yeah. So our audience will maybe be okay, but what about the rest of the people? Um, this is why cybercrime is still pervasive, even as institutional power increases, and why organizations like Anonymous are, are still a social and political force. If technology continues to advance, and there's no reason to believe it won't, there will always be a security gap in which technically savvy Robin Hoods can operate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Schneier says his main concern is the rest of us, everyone in the middle. These are people who don't have the technical ability to evade either the large government and corporations that are controlling their internet use or criminals and hacker groups who prey on them. Uh, these are the people who accept the default configuration options, who agree to arbitrary terms of service, uh, to NSA-installed backdoors, and the occasional complete loss of their data. In the feudal world, these are the, the hapless peasants. And it's even worse uh, when the feudal lords or any power fight each other. As anyone who's watched Game of Thrones knows, peasants get trampled when powers fight. <laughs> when Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon fight it out in the market, or when the U.S., the EU, and China, and Russia fight it out in geopolitics, or when it's the U.S. versus terrorists, or China versus dissidents, the abuse will only get worse as technology continues to advance. In the battle between institutional power and distributed power, more technology means more damage. Cyber criminals can rob more people more quickly than criminals who had to physically visit everyone they rob. Digital pirates can make more copies of more things uh, much more quickly than their analog forebearers, right? If I had to actually burn DVDs of everything I uh, pirated, it takes a lot longer than if I'm just making digital copies. Right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, 3D printers mean that data use restriction debate now involves guns, not just movies, right? So that's going to make a big difference there. It's the same problem as weapons of mass destruction fears, right? Terrorists with nuclear or biological weapons could do a lot more damage than terrorists with conventional explosives. Uh, The more destabilizing the technology, the greater the rhetoric of fear and the stronger institutional power will get. This means even more repressive security measures, even if the security gap means that such measures are increasingly inefficient and it will squeeze the peasants in the middle even more. So... It's exactly what we've been saying. As the government cracks down and tries to tighten things up to top terrorists, you know, the technology is allowing them to, to, because of that gap, the disorganized people can always be ahead. And so tightening down doesn't hurt them. But the regular people who, who aren't that nimble uh, are getting squeezed. So he says that transparency and oversight give us the confidence to trust institutional powers to fight the bad side of distributed power while still allowing the good side to flourish. If we can trust that. Yeah. Well, if we actually have transparency and oversight. Mm-hmm. And like and, you said, this, yeah. this is a political problem that requires a political answer. Like more encryption isn't going to solve this. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, you know, Paul Huntingham's been saying. Well, you know, when he says, you know, he says the people in the middle, the people who accept the defaults, mm-hmm. uh, I, I really had that re- realization when the when the Snowden leaks came out a couple of years ago, and it w- it became obvious that any non secured means of communication, SMS, regular phone calls, uh, regular SMTP email, they they watch, 
And anybody who has even enough knowledge to use encryption, use maybe a VPN, uh, maybe use GPG encryption for the things they transmit through the VPN or whatever, those people have a technological advantage that the average person doesn't have. And it really does become the have and have nots. And the haves, in this case, are the people that have the technical knowledge that know Mm -hmm. how to use this stuff. And I think it's one of the reasons why they don't like programs like Telegram and Silent Circle and and Signal and others to spread because it makes it much easier for common folks to use some of those tools. We've seen them trying to push back doors in all of those. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or fight them. So yeah, he says, transparency and oversight give us the confidence to trust those institutional powers to fight the bad guys while still letting the good guys uh, flourish. Uh, For if we were going to entrust our security to institutional powers, we need to know they will act in our interest and not abuse the power. Otherwise, democracy fails. And that's why it's important that mm-hmm. while the government can should do things to protect us or whatever, it has to be uh, you know transparent uh, and there has to be oversight. You know, we need courts that don't just rubber stamp their requests to to spy on people, right? They say you have to have a good reason to to violate this person's rights and so on, right? Right. Uh, see. This won't be an easy period for us as we try to work these issues out. Historically, no shift in power has ever been easy. Corporations have turned our personal data into an enormous revenue generator, and they're not going to back down. Neither will governments who have uh, harnessed the same data for their own purposes. But we have a duty to tackle the problem. Then he makes a really good analogy here. Uh, he says, data is the pollution problem of the information age. All, computers proce- all computer processes produce data. It stays around. We have to deal with it. We have to reuse and recycle it. Uh, we have to control who has access to it, how we dispose of it, and what laws regulate it. It's central to how the information age functions. And I believe that just as we look back at the early decades of the industrial age and wonder how society could ignore pollution in their rush to build an industrial world, our grandchildren will look back at us during these early decades of the information age and judge us on how we dealt with the rebalancing of power resulting from all this new data. Hmm. I can't tell you what the result will be. uh, These are all complicated issues and require meaningful debate, international cooperation, and innovative solutions. We need to decide on the proper balance between institutional and decentralized power and how to build tools that amplify what is good in each of these uh, while suppressing the bad. Well, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting post by Bruce Schneier. I mean, really, and, you know, I makes only, me those think. are only excerpts from it. The, yeah. It goes on and it makes a bunch of good points about, you know, uh, cybercrime and yeah. so on. The entire thing is worth reading because there is a lot more that we can't fit in the show. Um, I, I guess, too, I, I, I wonder if, so there's a, there's a book I've read uh, that, uh, by Tim Wu, and it basically walks through how print, and then radio broadcast, and then cable TV, all were hailed as the, the people's revolution, a new way to communicate, a new way to express ideas. It's going to tear down the barriers of the world. It's going to change everything. It's, and all of, the, all of those, over time, slowly became locked down by giant corporations and were controlled. Uh, now, the internet is different in the sense that uh, it's based on TCP IP. And uh, you can't really control and own the network in this particular case like you can with cable TV, radio, and uh, newspaper distribution well, and whatnot. it depends. If you, if you get down to the, you know, eight companies that run the internet, backbones, mm-hmm. then 
you know, they do technically own the pipes. They but there's no one the single per, there's no one single right. company in the position to say this is what's allowed on internet and this is what's right. not allowed on internet. Like there is for television and radio and print mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Yep. It's interesting, uh, but it does seem to be historically what happens. Um, I can't, the yeah. Master Switch, by the way, that book, The Master Switch, Tim Wu, super good. Really well, recommend it. Because print is gone originally when it first came out, you know, the printing press meant anybody could publish a book. Yeah. I mean, and then eventually you got to the, you know, publishing houses and distribution and it became right. needed a publisher. Yep. Now we're getting to self-publishing where it gets back to the point where you can actually make your own book and put it up on Amazon, you know, like right. the Sue books I did were self-published by my co-author. Uh and yeah, it goes both ways, doesn't it? That's true. So it's actually kind of got this. Is is it started out very open, and then kind of got closed down, and then we fought it to get open again. And we're still and here, mm-hmm. you know, doing this right well, now. Yeah, he actually, he makes a bunch of points about blogging and podcasting, and and how that changed media in the article. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can see all of it, you know. Boy, you should have included a bit have, about podcasting. Now, yeah. come on. <laughs> uh, we, we we can't have the internet go back to just being the wild west, uh, which works fine for you know. Our audience and me and you, yeah. who have the technical savvy to protect ourselves. Yep. But, you know, the people trying to do business or just the regular people are going to have all their things terrorized and, mm-hmm. and, and all their money stolen or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's not going to work. Uh, but at the same time, we really need to convince people to not just end up where the internet consists of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and that's it, or whatever, right? Yeah, because uh, uh, it really otherwise would be a real shy, pa- a real pale version of what was originally envisioned. Yeah, basically, we're going to end up with the AOL version of the internet, but there are six of them, and that's <laughs> it, or whatever. Basically, we're going to get down to like cable TV, where when cable mm-hmm. first started up, there were thousands of cable mm-hmm. companies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a little one for each area, or whatever. And now you have three choices. And we're basically going to get to that. Uh, you can you you want internet? You can have uh, Facebook internet, Google internet, or or Microsoft internet. Part of that is because of the revenue model that a lot of these online companies chose to go after, and it's just sort of just a tough business. Yeah. Well, that was a great post, and uh, we have uh, highlights in the show notes. But if you guys want to read the whole thing, it's linked as well. Any other thoughts? I highly recommend that. Any other thoughts on that one? Uh, that's actually part of a whole series. Uh, oh. If you go up one level in the directory there, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, okay. I, I didn't get to read them oh, all. Oh, I see, yeah. I saw yeah. one, uh, another one besides Snyers that's from the Prime Minister of Estonia, or President of, I don't know what the title is, but the, the current leader of Estonia. Because hmm. uh, uh, it turns out Estonia is a very um, um, tech-savvy country. Like They have e-government, everything. and like Cool. You know, Business completely online is, is very uh, because all the infrastructure is brand new. It's all modern, uh, but and with the fact that their president writes articles for about the you know greater glory of the internet. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Uh, but I might dig into that one a little bit uh, for next week. Speaking of greater glory, if you'd like a little greater glory where you work, check out iX Systems. Move your purchases over for hardware to iX Systems and then reap the benefits. They build systems that are incredible. Doesn't really depend on the workload. The one we talk a lot about here on the show is 
storage, but we're going to get to another one here in a moment that's pretty neat. iX Systems is really, though, the ultimate place to go for your open source workload. They have a great bidding process where you go in there, you talk to the, the salespeople, they really know what they're doing, they actually know what, how the technology works and what your work case is. They have great support through the entire process. They test the rigs before they ship them, and they're built around those incredible Intel processors. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. If you've never heard of TrueNAS, go check that out. I'm sure you've probably heard of FreeNAS. I know I've been uh, oogling that FreeNAS XL recently. They are, of course, the home of FreeNAS as well. But uh, check them out and pay some, uh, pay some little, pay a little bit of time. Just you know, go over there and check out the blog. Just go over there, check out the blog because there is a really great post right now called Heliport. Now, yes. <laughs> I'm so, guessing this is networking. Quite a while ago, they they did Megaport, which was this machine is like four machines in in one two U chassis with a whole bunch of of uh, ports. But this new one is even bigger. It's got a uh, it's got a Xeon in it, right? It's got yep. eight eight gigabytes of ECC RAM, so eight so it's got sixty four total with twenty four DIMM slots. Can go up to three terabytes of memory. <laughs> two yes. Intel dual port ten gig E uh, network adapters and one Intel quad port ten gig E uh, with SFP and, uh, adapters too. Yeah. So basically, in this uh, chassis, you end up with. Uh, Eight 10 gig ports and two one gig ports yeah. in one U of space. Yeah, in one U. In one U. Yeah, in one U. Did they? Did they say in here what the uh, what the build was for? Uh, I don't, they don't. They don't blab with the customers. I'm do. always. I'm always impressed. You know, check out. They on their site. They have. Uh, yeah, our clients. Go over to their website and look at their our client section of IX Systems and uh, just sort of be. So in awe. Look at this. Look at this list here. If you're listening, everybody's on here from uh, Sega, LinkedIn, Juniper, Firefox, or I suppose Mozilla, the FreeBSD Foundation, Mozilla Foundation, Adobe, Evernote, Treadmicro, Twitch, Autodesk, Nielsen, Adbright, NASA, <laughs> the U.S. Army. I love it. Check it out. Go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Support the show. Learn more about them. They also have a white paper you can download. That's the page you got to go to support the show, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. You can check out their blog and read about the heliport, which looks like quite the monster. And a big thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Thank you, IX. So, Alan, this next story, uh, boy, it's got all the elements I love from a story. The title is How We Broke PHP, Hacked Pornhub, and earned twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> okay, you got my attention. <laughs> yeah. So if you remember, a couple months back, we covered uh, Pornhub opened up their new bug bounty program. Yes, why uh, HackerOne.com. Mm-hmm. Well, um, because of the large bounty attached to it, it attracted some interest from some people. <laughs> so now a group of researchers have collected one a twenty thousand dollar bounty from it and are sharing the details on how they did it. Um, so uh, they say we. We've gained remote code execution on Pornhub.com and have earned a $20,000 bounty from HackerOne. We've also been awarded uh, two $1,000 bounties by the Internet Bug Bounty Committee uh, related to this work as well. So they actually uh, got the bug bounty for breaking into Pornhub, but also got two separate bug bounties for uh, the actual individual exploits they made because the um, Internet Bug Bounty Committee uh, gives out bug, smaller bug bounties for um, anything in... You know, internet infrastructure. So in this case, a bug in PHP affects a lot of websites. So they're adding, you know, they add a little bit to the bounties for those mm. to try to get more people to work on that type of stuff. Nice, because you know, it's not always as sexy as hacking Pornhub, but yeah. 
Yeah, fixing flaws <laughs> that affect very like, funny. every WordPress. Yeah, uh-huh. mm-hmm. that is true. Yeah, yeah, that's that's big. T- that's big time. Putting some motivation behind those is good. So they say uh, we have found two use after free vulnerabilities in PHP's garbage collection algorithm. So that's basically how uh, PHP um, looks at stuff you're not using anymore and frees up that memory. Um, those vulnerabilities were remotely exploitable using PHP's unserialized function. Uh, so to kind of cover that, when you have an object in PHP, you can do what's called serializing it, which basically turns it into a text string that you can move, you can store somewhere, and when you pull it back, you can unserialize it, which takes it from that text string and turns it back into that in-memory object. It basically allows you to take something complex and store it as something simple that you'll be able to reconstruct the original based on. Um, so after analyzing the platform, we quickly detected the usage of unserialize on the website. Uh, multiple paths, basically anywhere where you can upload, they say hot pictures and so on, uh, was affected. In the case, uh, in all cases, a parameter uh, named cookie get, is uh, sent as part of the post to the website, and uh, any data you put in that parameter is uh, unserialized, turned around, and then basically set via a cookie, so that your client will send it to the website every time you send the next request to the website. Mm. And this is how the website, um, you know, keeps track of the the stuff you give it. So when you post a picture or a video up there, you put in the description and so on. And maybe you know when you first post it, uh, they're going to process the video and do some stuff with it. And then on the next step, you're actually going to you know save it or whatever. Right. And so they want to carry that information along for a bit. So they use a cookie to do that. Uh, so yeah, whenever you send data to the website while uploading, it was serialized and set as a cookie, which was then unserialized and read back into the application uh, with each request. Mm-hmm. This is how websites maintain data across multiple sites. The problem is, because it was used as a cookie, it means I could change that data, and then the website's going to take it and unserialize it, assuming it's good. Ah. But if I it bad, it could yeah. cause unexpected yeah. behavior. And then it goes into memory when it unserializes it. Yeah. Uh, so when the researchers modified the post request to include a serialized PHP exception, so it's basically a special kind of error, so when they replaced the uh, the cookie that's supposed to be there with this, this little serialized object and added, put an exception in it, when they when PHP unserialized that, it printed out this exception error on from on Pornhub's website. So they actually you know made a change to it and made the website spit out something it wasn't supposed to. Uh, and so this is you know they say well this strikes uh, as a harmless information disclosure at first sight. But generally, it is known that uh, using user input on unserialized is a bad idea. Mm. Right? That function's meant to only unserialize stuff that you serialized, not stuff that a random attacker maybe has modified to be malicious. Right. The core unserializer alone is a relatively complex bit of code as it involves more than <laughs> 1,200 lines uh, in PHP 5.6. Shocking. Furthermore, many internal PHP classes have their own unserialized methods. Because if you have a custom class, you make a custom serializer and unserializer to to create and dis, uh, to you know dump and restore that class. Roger. Uh, by supporting structures like objects, arrays, integers, strings, and even references to other objects, it is no surprise that PHP's track record shows a tendency for bugs and memory corruption vulnerabilities in the serialized code. Sadly, there are no known vulnerabilities of this type for newer versions of PHP, like PHP 5.6 or PHP 7. Especially because the unserialized function already gets a lot of attention uh, from researchers in the past. Well, that would make sense. 
So they say, hence auditing it can be compared to squeezing an already tightly squeezed lemon. <laughs> Does not sound fun. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, you're not going to get much lemon juice. Out. No. <laughs> uh, finally, after so much attention and so many security fixes, its vulnerability potentially should have been drained out and it should be secure, shouldn't it? Hmm. So they wrote a fuzzer to basically throw random stuff at it until it misbehaved. Uh, and they started testing it. Eventually, they found a bug in PHP 7's serializer, uh, but when they tried it against Pornhub, it didn't work. This suggests that Pornhub's using the older PHP 5.6. Uh, so they started running the fuzzer against 5.6, and after mm. generating more than one terabyte of logs of the different things they tried, they hadn't found a vulnerability yet. But eventually, after putting more and more effort into the fuzzing, we stumbled across uh, unexpected behavior, finally. So a, tr a tremendous amount of time uh, was necessary to analyze the potential issues. After all, we could extract a concise proofs of concept of a working memory corruption bug, uh, a so-called use-after-free vulnerability. Upon further investigation, we discovered that the root cause could be found in PHP's garbage collection algorithm, a component of PHP that is completely unrelated to the unserialized function. However, the interaction of both components occurred only after unserialized had finished its job. Hmm. Consequently, it was not... Uh, well suited to remote exploitation, or remote exploitation. After further analysis, gaining a deeper understanding of the problem's root causes, and a lot of hard work to uh, on similar use after free vulnerabilities, they found uh, what seemed to be a promising remote exploit that they could use. Even after uh, even the promising use after free vulnerability, the second one they found uh, was considered difficult to exploit. In particular, involved uh, multi. Step uh, multiple steps in order to exploit it. Uh, then the article goes on in details about some of the background and how to actually exploit it. And it gets into like the nitty gritty of uh, modifying the uh, instruction pointer and actually how you jump around in the code and how what a uh, return oriented uh, programming a ROP is and how all that works. <laughs> Sounds uh, nice and nerdy. Oh yeah, like way down in the system there. Uh, once they had the ability to execute the code that they provided to the PHP script, uh, they needed a way to view the output. The problem is when they uh, were doing all this stuff to make PHP execute their random bits of instructions they injected into it, it would ex execute the instructions, but then the stack was left in such a mess that it would crash. So there's multiple reasons to try to solve that. One of them is you know, the person you're attacking will notice if their PHP processes keep crashing and they keep logging that they're crashing, right? Sure, yeah, hopefully. Might <laughs> suggest they're, that somebody's doing memory corruption attacks against your thing. Uh, so say being able to arbitrary or execute arbitrary PHP code is an important step, but being able to view its output is equally as important, unless one wants to deal with side channels to receive the responses. Uh, so the remaining tricky part was somehow display the result on Pornhub's website. Usually, the PHP-CGI application forwards the generated content back to the web server so it's displayed on the website. But wrecking the control flow uh, as badly as they did uh, creates an abnormal termination of PHP, and the result would never get back to the HTTP server. Right? The, when uh, PHP-CGI crashes, the result doesn't normally get sent back to the web server, or the web server normally doesn't display it. It displays a 500 error and maybe uh, tries again and then shows an error page or whatever. Um, to get around this problem, we simply told PHP to use direct unbuffered responses that are usually used for HTTP streaming. So they'd output their stuff and then, uh, so normally you decide what website you want to send and then at the very end you actually send it to the web server. 
and they were crashing before that. So instead, they told PHP, start sending to the web server like line by line as I'm doing this or character by character as I'm outputting this. And uh, that way, when they crashed, the partial message would at least have gotten out. <laughs> I like so, how they thought that through. Uh, then to basically the steps they had to go through is together with their uh, ROP stack that they had constructed to be able to execute code, uh, which they would provide via the post uh, data, their payload did the following things. First, they would create a fake object that was later on passed as a parameter to that set cookie uh, thing that we talked about in the beginning. Uh, this caused a call to the uh, provided add ref function, uh, which allowed us to gain the program control counter. Uh, so they would basically, once they had that, they could control when uh, which code would be executed next. Hmm. Then the ROP chain then prepared all the registers and parameters that they needed, which is the big ugly section in the middle of the, there. And then they say, next, we were able to execute arbitrary code by making a call to the Zen eval string. So basically, uh, PHP has a function called eval, and you just give it a string of code, and it runs it. Uh, so they were able to use that against that chunk of memory that they had filled with whatever they wanted. And then finally, uh, we caused a clean process termination while also fetching the output from the response body and sending that to the website. So then they have an example in the code there, and they show uh, once running the above code, we were uh, they got into the system and had a nice view of Pornhub's etc password file. Uh, due to the nature of our attack, we would have been able to execute other commands or actually break out of PHP and run arbitrary syscalls. However, just using PHP was more convenient at this point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, finally, we dumped a few details about the uh, underlying system and immediately wrote and submitted a report to Pornhub over at HackerOne. Because part of the uh, Pornhub um, bug bounty thing is when you do break in, you have to just tell us and not go around screwing up our stuff. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so they say, we gained remote code execution, and if we were bad guys, we would have been able to do the following things. Dump the complete database of Pornhub.com, including all sensitive user information. So that'd be all the users and their email addresses and their hash passwords and what videos they watched and all that. Uh Tracking and uh, observing user behavior on the platform, so they'd be able to tell you know which videos people were watching or whatever, and you know with that database and having the history there, I don't know how much Pornhub stores. You know, I know on your computer you use private browsing mode and don't keep a history of what porn you were watching, but the porn site might keep track of that, and if you're logged in, then uh, you know you might actually be able to tell what type of porn someone watches and maybe blackmail them or something depending on what. Hmm. You know, I don't imagine there's anything too bad on Pornhub, but. It could be, whatever. Uh, but yeah, and they can also track and observe user behavior. They can leak the complete available source code of all sites hosted on the server. Right? Once you have access to the server, hmm. you can see all the source code. That could be great uh, for a c competition. Yeah, there's a lot of other websites that probably would love to have the nice <laughs> of Pornhub, which seems to be a relatively well-built website compared to some porn sites. <laughs> or they could have escalated further into the network or rooted the system. And then they could have, you know, injected uh, some malware into every page on Pornhub.com. Yeah, that'd yeah. have been nice. That's a different kind of uh, watering hole attack. Yeah, boy, some ransomware, something like that. Yeah, exactly. They say it is well known that uh, using user input into the unserialized function is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. In particular, about ten years have passed since it uh, its first weaknesses have become apparent. Unfortunately, even today, many developers seem to believe that unserialized is only dangerous in old versions of PHP uh, or when combined with unsafe classes. We uh, sincerely hope that this destroys this misbelief. Uh, 
please finally put a nail in unserialized coffin so that, you know, uh, and following the mantra that it becomes obsolete. Yeah. Uh, so unserialized is only meant to take data from the serialized function that the end user or outside people never have access to. Right. right. So it works great for the cookie that, uh, or for the session information that PHP generates. You keep some stuff and you write it on the server, not the one you send to it, not a cookie you send to the user, but the data you keep on the server. As long as nobody except for you ever modifies that, it's, it's safe. But if you send it to the user, then the user could mess it up and cause this exploit. <laughs> That's why the way PHP sessions work is you generate a random ID and you set that as a cookie to the user and that just tells them which file in your session store on your server is, contains the serialized information. You don't actually give it to the user. That makes sense. Plus, then you can store things about the user you wouldn't want them to know, like your nasty things <laughs> about how they're... <laughs> this you know. idiot keeps complaining that it's our website when they have too many bars installed in their browser. Sorry, that yeah. kind of stuff. <clears throat> anyway, they say, uh, uh, you should never use user input on unserialized. Assume that there's an... Uh, Assuming that using an up-to-date PHP version is enough to provide protection in such a scenario is a bad idea. Hmm. While lots of people have found uh, have, have worked on it and cleaned up a lot of the holes, it doesn't mean there aren't more. Uh, as these guys just proved. Well, uh, I'm glad to see that A, somebody took Pornhub up on their offer, and B, uh, seems Pornhub is coming through on the payout too, right? So uh, They say also... Um, Avoid unserialize or use less complex serialization methods like JSON, where it doesn't mm. create uh, such complex objects. Right? Okay. You're, you're not instantiating a class and doing all this stuff. Okay. You're just creating, you know, JSON's a little safer. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, it's entirely possible that somebody could uh, make some magic JSON string that would screw up your PHP too. Yeah, it's yeah, a true. lot better bet than than <laughs> PHP serialize. Okay, and it's usually smaller, which is helpful. Hmm. All right, okay. that's about it for that story. And uh, so I guess they're getting two thousand uh, dollars for the oh, oh, twenty thousand dollars from Pornhub, right? And two thousand at uh, initiative. For, yeah, for the for the PHP stuff. <clears throat> well, that's really cool, and uh, we of course have links to that in the show notes, and they and their links to other write ups they have done. Uh, their write up as uh, all the detail of how they actually did the ROP and, and mm. actually execute it. Yeah, if you uh, really want to dig in real deep on that one. Cool. Now, I want to talk about DigitalOcean, where you can dig in in less than 55 seconds and have yourself a server spun up with 512 megabytes of RAM. And get this, for only $5 a month. That'll include a 20 gigabyte SSD, a terabyte of transfer, and one CPU. DigitalOcean really makes it easy. And if you look at their pricing, go over to their pricing page and switch it over to the hourly, and then think about some of your projects you could do with that pricing. For $0.03 cents an hour, you can get 2 gigs of RAM, a 2-core processor, 40 gigabytes of SSD, and 3, three terabytes of transfer. Now, here's the magic part. <clears throat> You combine that crazy great pricing with our promo code SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase, $10 credit. Think about how long you could run a machine for $0.03 cents an hour. Yep. That's great. So go over to DigitalOcean and try them out. They have a whole bunch of distros for you to choose from, and they also have free BSD. You can set up multiple machines at once or just a single machine. Add your SSH key, get HTML5 console access, deploy the base operating system or entire stack of applications. And they have a great community full of superb documentation. Check out this one over here, how to protect your server against the HTTP proxy vulnerability. 
Well, isn't that yeah, a nice that was one? Last week's episode, basically. Yeah, yeah, and there you go. So if you if you caught last week's episode, there's a great tutorial on it. They have a really nice interface that's very simple, an API that makes taking advantage of a lot of their services super straightforward, with tons of good open source code already written, stuff you can just take and start using now, or example code. Uh, we're going to talk about next week how we use JBot, and JBot uses that. It's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really convenient and powerful. Check them out, digitalocean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOCEAN. That's one word, yeah. lowercase. And uh, every time, every single time now, when I'm working on a project... It's so nice because the, the servers are super fast, and I can just go over there, spin something up, try it out. I have the snapshots where I can jump back. It is my go-to place because I try something, and I end up loving it, and then I'm just ready to put it in production. Like I'll give you an example. Uh, I was going on a road trip, and I, I wanted to have a car tracking program where family members could watch our journey. I didn't really want to use a public service, and there's like two or three really good open source projects out there. I stood each each one up on a DigitalOcean droplet, and then I just kept the droplet for the one I ended up using. It's really easy, super nice. So check them out, DigitalOcean.com. Just use the promo code SNAPOcean. All right, so an ex Citibank IT guy caused some chaos. What's going on, Alan? Yes. Uh, so Lennon Ray Brown is 38. I had been working at Citibank's Irving, Texas corporate office uh, headquarters uh, since about 2012. Uh, first, he was a contractor, and later he became a staff employee. Uh, then uh, one day, he was called into uh, by his manager and uh, reprimanded for poor performance. Uh, at this point, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice said the rogue employee uploaded a series of commands to Citigroup's global control center routers, Whoa. Uh, deleting the configuration files of uh, t- 10 of the routers and causing traffic to be rerouted through a set of backup routers. Court documents show that while there was uh, not a complete outage, the rerouting led to congestion on the network and at the branch offices. Uh, Brown admits that on December 23, 2013, he issued commands to wipe the configuration files on 10 core routers within Citibank's internal network. Oh. The resulting outage hit both network and phone access at 110 branches nationwide, about 90% of all of Citibank's branch offices. Uh, Brown said the the following in a text message he sent to his coworker shortly after the incident. So I guess <laughs> okay. it would have been you know just before Christmas at this point. Uh, he says, They're f- um, they were firing me. Uh, I was... Uh, I just beat them to it. Nothing personal. The upper management needs to see what the the guys on the floor are capable of doing when they keep getting mistreated. I took uh, I took one for the team. Uh, sorry if I made my peers look bad, but sometimes it takes something like what I did to wake the management up. And uh, so he admitted to intentionally causing damages uh, in February, and has been sentenced to 21 months in federal prison and. Uh, a $77,000 fine. Boy, isn't it interesting how wrapped up you can get in, in, in a company like that and how you can, you can become so important to you that they see it your way that you're willing to fall on the sword, in this guy's logic, for your uh, coworkers so that way they can be saved. Uh, people really, you know, people who get into this and do IT, I think they sometimes take it very, very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. And that guy obviously took it very, very seriously, Alan. Uh, have you ever been motivated? Have you ever thought about, you know, <clears throat> trying to push a company towards something? And uh, I, I have a story. I don't, I don't know about you, but have you ever? Well, I have a, a you know, a rogue exit min story. Yeah. Oh, really? But it's not, uh, it's not a company one. So it was uh, an IRC network, uh, the one before Geek Shed, actually. 
Uh, and there was, you know, uh, there was one faction that wanted to do things one way and one oh, yeah. faction wanted to do the other way. And the guy who was controlled the domain uh-huh. decided to sell the domain to the faction that wasn't on my side. Uh-huh. Uh, but the problem was all the servers was controlled by my faction because my faction was made up of all the, like, the technical people, right? Uh, and then the other side was the people with the money or whatever. And, and so they bought the domain. But all the DNS was still hosted by me. And before they had time to go to the registrar and change it, you know, set up new DNS servers and switch it, I switched everything to point to our new servers and jacked the TTLs like way up. Like I set them to like a month. (laughs) (laughs) So anybody who cached this DNS was stuck with it for a long time and a bunch of things like that. So we like blocked them from the servers, rebooted everything, switched to the geek shit name, uh, blew everything out, but left their domain completely pointing to us and broken <laughs> and just uh, we kind of ruined them pretty badly. So my story was uh, we had this uh, IIS server that ran on Windows 2000. It was old and it, it was not very stable. And it seemed like the IIS service kept crashing. Something kept going on with the web service. And so uh, we were campaigning management for a while. Just, okay, can we replace this? Because once everybody in the network tries to log in, uh, our system goes offline, it crashes, and then nobody can check into the uh, system, and nobody can file a help desk ticket about it because, oh, the internet's down. And there's a lot of little things you had to do via the internet in the mornings at this company. So I thought, well, I'll go check the logs, and I'll see how many times this has crashed, and then I'll go to management with this, and I'll say, look, look at all these crashes. We have to replace the system. This was me trying to advocate for it. And as I'm going through the log, I start to notice that the air is occurring at a pretty specific interval. That the server is crashing specifically at a, like every 15 minutes. And then what happens is, is that Windows restarts the service, and then the service crashes in a 15 minutes, and then the, the way the system was set, it didn't restart again. And I recalled talking to one of my coworkers. He had set up a little script to connect to the port, port 80, and see if it was listening. And then disconnect. And I can't remember the details of exactly what happened, but he had screwed up this little check script somehow, and it was crashing the web server service. And I, and the way the order of the command went, I went to him with the report, and he went to management and didn't tell him that it was his script, and just said, well, look, the server's crashing all the time. We've got to replace it. And I remember when he came back, I'm like, well, what was the verdict? They're going to replace the server. Like, what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? And I had to. Then I had to decide. Like, do I go in there and say, like, hey, I know this is, but I just I let it be. I let it be. That was I was complicit in that regard. But I remember like, um, I'm looking at this log file, and it's every 15 minutes, and your script checks every 15. Can we turn that off for an afternoon? And as soon as we turn it off, no errors, no errors, and then one error in the evening. And it was like, oh, we were just we were exacerbating the problem by monitoring the problem. Yep. Uh, that reminds me of IIS had a memory leak if your rewrite rules had regular expressions in them. Because <laughs> they tried to add regular expressions to be more like Apache, right? To support Apache-style rules uh, for rewrite stuff, for redirects and so on. Uh, but there was a memory leak in it for a long time. Uh, and you had to like get a weird patch from Microsoft that was hard to get to, to solve it. And so... Uh, the solution for the newspaper was we'll put varnish in front of the IIS servers and just do the redirect there and only pass the other stuff through. But that can be a uh, you know 
what you end up having. If you have to run something like IIS, you really should protect it with something like Nginx or Varnish in front <laughs> so that the monitoring scripts or bots pounding on it don't take out your server. Yep, yep. That was the, it was just, you know, I don't remember what it was with Windows 2000 uh, back then, but it was just buggy as hell. In Wait, first... IIS was how we got code red and yep. Uh, yep. like a hundred other bugs. Yep. It was good times. Only one or two actually came from the SQL server. What was that SQL one called? I uh, was just trying to remember. Um, oh, shoot. I bet the chat room might remember. But that was a good one. And that almost bit us, too, because we had SQL servers in a DMZ. Slammer. Was it or something? Flamer? Slammer or Flamer. something. Well, maybe the chat room can... Uh, can uh, help us out. All right, Alan. So uh, maybe while they're trying to figure it out, I'll mention Ting. Uh, go to techsnap.ting.com. That's the URL to visit, techsnap.ting.com. That gives you $25 in service credit if you bring a device. And stay tuned for why you might want to do that. Or if you're going to buy a brand new device and they're all unlocked and crazy great prices, they'll give you $25 off the device. Now, Ting is mobile that makes sense. It's really straightforward and simple. I've been using them for over two and a half years now. And I love it because I only pay for what I use. And that means if I'm on Wi-Fi, I'm not paying for anything the way I use my phone. That is a powerful combination. When you combine that with any device you bring to Ting that's on GSM or CDMA that works on their networks, you bring that device over and there's no contract, no early termination fee. If you buy a brand new device, there's no contract or no early termination fee. And then you combine that with a radically great customer service, totally different than the rest of the industry. And then you combine that with their super great dashboard. It really is true. They are on a mission to make mobile make sense. Uh, I love their blog. They actually have legitimately good stuff over there all the time, including a great series on cord cutting, which I have been following for a while. And then last but not least, I encourage you to go check out their page, depending on your needs, and really think about what you need from a phone. You could buy a SIM card for $9 and then just activate it when you're ready. Or get a feature phone that just makes calls, maybe has a battery that lasts a week, has a good speaker on it. You can, get it, you can get the Kyocera Dura XTP, which is going to last you through a nuclear war for $63. No contract, no early termination. You just pay when you use it. $6 for each line. The Motorola E is a crazy great price. This is an interesting beast, too. And I, I kind of like it. The Kyocera Torque XT. It's like a ruggedized Android phone. Check this thing out. 83 bucks. It's built like a tank. But it don't break the bank. <laughs> oh, Ting, you so funny. It's got NFC, LTE, and it's a military standard 810G, which means the phone can take all the dust, rain, radiation, salt, and humidity you can throw at it. It's like got a built-in... Jeez, look at this thing. Holy smokes. And it's 83 bucks. Plus, you go to techsnap.ting.com. Uh, you'll, you'll get our discount. You'll get support the show. I mean, this is ridiculous. That is so cool. Of course, they got all the high-end phones, too. Everything up to the, the Galaxy Eyes and the Internet phones. You know, you go check it out over there on the thing. They got the S7 Edge. Ooh, hello. Oh, man. The LG G5, the 6P. I, honestly, my favorite route to go is just go get a Nexus from the Google Play Store and bring it over to Ting. It's a great experience. TechSnap.Ting.com. Check them out. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I've been a happy customer for a while. And you guys can try out their uh, calculator and see if it, uh, if it works for you. 
So you know somebody is a hardcore fan when they buy a Tesla for like I don't know I presume like eighty thousand dollars and then they no, put they it put the hundred and thirty thousand dollar version. Okay, okay, hundred and thirty thousand dollar and then puts a free BSD sticker on it. I mean that's somebody that somebody is Leo Laporte and uh, mm-hmm. he has recently switched to free BSD and I caught a glimpse of you guys were looking at some retro uh, Leo clips and reminiscing. It oh, looked yes. like a fun episode. Yes. Um, so from the old, old old tech TV days, like early two thousands, I guess uh, we have there's uh, four different segments. Uh, there's one of FreeBSD versus Linux. So they had uh, Matt Olander from IX Systems back when it was called Off My Server. No way. Uh, and uh, and uh, what was the other guy's name? Um, Murray Stokely, who worked for FreeBSD Mall, which was later bought by IX Systems. Yeah. Um, on the FreeBSD side, and two guys from I don't know where, but something to do with Linux, and they were do, having a head-to-head competition of who could set up uh, their operating system and make a web server and everything cool. fastest. And who won? And, you know, with FreeBSD, that takes like six minutes, so they they clobbered the Linux. Did they? Terribly. Did they really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's another episode where they had uh, Matt Olander again and uh, Brooks Davis, uh, who works at SRI and stuff, and they about building uh, clustered computers. Using FreeBSD, because that's what Brooks did for a living back then. And then they had another one where they just kind of explained FreeBSD a bit. Uh, These are all old episodes of the screensavers. Yeah, back when it was on uh, on Tech TV. Before it got bought by Comcast. Right. Wow. I used used to watch that when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so of course there's other other events and happenings in the BSD land. But episode 152 of the BSD Now program covers some of that and much more. It's pretty cool. Episode 152. You guys can go grab it right now and uh, get HD versions because then you get you get even higher resolution Jude. You get, you get local camera Jude in that episode. It's totally all BSD now episodes. It's totally worth it. Uh, plus, we're at the halfway point here in this show, so by the time we're all done here, you can watch that. Anything else you want to mention about that episode? Uh, no. It's okay. a good one. Watch it. Check it out. 152. Okay. Well, with the main news segment all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the JB website. Or maybe you start a thread in our subreddit, which there is a new one over there if you want to jump in at it, at techsnap.reddit.com. Oliver sends in our first email today. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. Just wanted to give you some insights into the Ubuntu Forms hack. So this is a follow-up from last week's episode. Uh, it was Formrunner, which is a plug-in in vBulletin Core. Well, why for, uh, Formrunner has to be in the core, I seriously don't know. Keeping it mean and lean would really help uh, with the security part. But that's a general problem on all of the more modern form software packages. Not only do they include the package uh, to unzip and untar, but most form developers seem to think it's cool to use beta or even alpha stuff in there. Uh, he says the problem was fixed with the vBulletin team roughly two weeks before the Ubuntu forums got hacked. Uh, but the patch uh, was simply just to replace four static PHP files in a directory and had no impact on the database and that or anything else that needed to be done. So it's kind of a pity that the admins for the Ubuntu forums... One of the largest forums on the planet, he points out, got hacked by a forum. I don't know if it's actually that big on the scale of forums. Yeah, I know. Got pa- uh, uh, got to, got a, got a, was hacked by a vulnerability that got took uh, took only twenty seconds to patch. 
you know. Yeah, so if they had a couple of weeks, you know, yeah. I, I kind of assumed that it was a third-party component. A couple of weeks, though, isn't, wasn't that un- unheard yeah, of. Right. That's, that's pretty if, standard. if the vulnerability is that bad and is known to be being yes. exploited, vBulletin should be contacting people or something. Of yeah, course, having div- having dealt with vBulletin a little bit, they're not great at that. And having a large vBulletin site, you should probably be more on top on of those top things. Of that and, kind of thing, yeah. Because yeah. uh, that happens a lot. Yeah. Mosh guy just, writes in. Oh, go ahead. When I first uh, started Scale Engine, it was one of our main focuses was hosting v- vBulletin sites because when they get busy, they huh. got really slow. Yeah, it's around that, mm-hmm. um, and you know that was a big part of my bread and butter for a while. But I'm glad it's not anymore because mm-hmm. that was terrible software. And yeah, I don't know the answer to why all forum software is terrible. <laughs> uh, I think it mostly has to do with the type of people that like to build forum software. Hmm. Uh, you know, they're the type of people that like to use forums, uh, and that's just a different mindset, right? It's like, you know, when you're building forums, you're thinking about features and stuff, not about how can I make this as minimalist as possible. But then you see, you know, if you look at forum software in a different angle of like, you know, look at what Reddit does, it's like if you just want if or or, or Hacker News is a really technically a forum except for. Uh, you don't normally start a, a thread has to be started with a link instead of just a topic or whatever, and it's a slightly different layout. But uh, you know, yeah, like, I agree. That seems like a really, a, a really a modern day form. Very minimalist interface, but everybody's pretty happy with it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, Mosh guy writes in. He says, "Hey, Alan, Chris, I really enjoy the show. I've got a PFSense question for you. I'm currently running two routers. The grown-up network is connected directly to my cable modem. The kids' network is connected to the grown-up network's router. The kids' network uses open open DNS's parental filters to create a more kid-friendly internet, and the grown-up network uses the default." Comcast DNS servers. I'm going to build a PFSense box to emulate the two routers. I want to do DNS caching to speed up my network, but I'm not sure how I would do it since the grown-up network and the kid network require completely different DNS settings. Mosh guy from Summerfield, Florida. Yeah. So in, in raw DHCP configurations, if you have the two different VLANs or whatever, you can give out different uh, DNS server thing, so mm. you could make the kids network continue to use open DNS and the grown up network use the local resolver that does the caching but ideally you'd want to almost cache both is there a way to do it like assignment via MAC address I don't know about DNS DHCP assignment via MAC address but if there's um, a way to is there of, a way to do that uh, you can assign DHCP settings per MAC address uh, or you know per VLAN which makes it easier right because if, if you have if you're PFSense has, you know, an, an extra NIC that you can connect, and you have like the, uh, everything plugged into this switch is mm-hmm. kid network, and everything on this switch is uh, so physically separated via the switches. Yeah, uh, or you know, yeah. So if you have physically separate VLANs or whatever, then you can uh, have different DCP settings. One uses this server, one uses that server. Uh, in order to cache both, you'd almost need to run two caching DNS servers. And with their different upstream like hmm. uh, forwarders, just make them both forwarders, but caching. Um, really, DNS caching isn't going to make as big a difference as it used to, right? Your latency to your DNS server, you're not on dial-up. Your latency to your DNS server isn't 500 milliseconds anymore. You know, your latency to the Comcast DNS server should be under 20 milliseconds, I would hope. And so saving that 20 milliseconds isn't going to help you that much. So I don't know that you need to bother maybe just keeping your current setup uh, uh, or, you know, combining those two routers into one and having the VLANs, but with different uh, DNSs configured, uh, should be enough and 
I don't know if you want to bother with the caching. Uh, See, yeah. Or in, in particular, have the caching for the grown-up network and don't bother for the kids' network. The kids aren't going to notice the extra 20 milliseconds, right? I uh, Yeah, I was just going to say, one of the things it seems like you could do if you really wanted to just push the easy button is have your DHCP server hand out open DNS to all the devices on the network. So all of your other devices, except for the machines you want to browse your porn on, just statically assign Comcast DNS to that one. You and could. You could. And, uh, it, and then that's all, because that is a, that's enough of a little bit of an extra step that that's a quick little workaround you can always turn on to any machine and then turn it off without mm -hmm. having to do a lot of reconfiguration. Yep, that works. Uh, or, yeah, uh, it's probably easier than having VLANs and so on, too. Uh, but there's a lot of different ways to. You could also somehow figure out how to do different subnets for the kids' network, for well, the parents' the network. Let you do that right there, right? There you, you go. You treat them as two separate networks in in PFSense by so, using VLANs or by using two separate NICs. Because I'm guessing the switches you have at home don't support VLANs. Yeah. So you <laughs> physical isolation in that case. Yeah, that's a good one. Because you know, for thirty dollars, you can get another eight port switch. Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, so this one might be a matter of opinion. Uh, Danik writes in and says, I was wondering, what webmail providers do you recommend? I currently purchased a few domains, and it would be, uh, I would like to have a few mailboxes on them. He has preferences for Canadian providers. Thanks, Danik. What do you think, Alan? Uh, what I've always done would be, uh, basically my answer to that right now would be, you get a $5 DigitalOcean droplet, and you tell them to put it in Toronto instead of the U.S., and then you install a web server and a, a webmail client. Uh, Roundcube was pretty popular for its almost Gmail-like interface. Yeah. Uh, and then you know that the only person with access to your mail is you. Uh, the downside is you have to admin the web server and constantly update Roundcube so it doesn't get exploited or whatever. Um, as far as an actual webmail provider, I have no idea. I've hosted my own email since 2001. I think if, you're gonna, if you really want that level of... Um Confidence, you're going to have to self-host. There's yeah. one that and I, I can, hear a lot. You get a uh, Let's Encrypt certificate yeah. Uh, yeah. and everything. So for that extra $5 a month with DigitalOcean, yeah. you use Let's Encrypt for HTTPS, and then you just, whatever Linux or BSD that you prefer, uh, web server like Nginx or Apache, install Roundcube or Squirrel Mail or whatever webmail app you I would definitely like. check out Roundcube, yeah. And I think yeah. there's, I and think I'm almost positive there are tutorials on DigitalOcean for setting all that up. One thing I'll say is I do hear a lot of Colab, mentioned. Uh, they're not Canadian. They're Switzerland. Uh, they have uh, a couple of different services, including some hosted stuff, and they've made a really big effort uh, post-Snowden to stand out, uh, and uh, they've taken some steps to be trustworthy. So you might check them out, collabsystems.com, and Google around for Colab and learn more about that. Uh, as far as hosted mail, though, yeah, I agree with Alan. It's if you really want to be safe, just spin it up in their Toronto data center. Uh, okay, so the next one comes in from him all right in the IRC, a.k.a. Ryan. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. I'm sure you've answered this in the past, but I wasn't able to find it. I have a Proxmox server that I also set up as a with a data pool, Zpool, that acts that runs on my NAS. I have an external hard drive that is large enough to hold my data for the time being, and I would like to be able to take snapshots of my data Zpool and send it to the external hard drive. If possible, I'd also like to encrypt the hard drive with Lux in case it ends up in someone else's hands. So far, I have set up Lux on the drive, and I made a Zpool with it. Uh, and I was even able to take a snapshot of the data Zpool and send it over to the external one using ZFS send and receive commands. However, 
When I tried to do it again a week later, it wouldn't let me move the snapshot there, even when I tried to force it, because it said there was already a snapshot there, or, or something like that, I don't remember. I realized I might not be approaching this right, so I thought I'd ask the expert. Hertz. Alan and Chris, how would you go about setting up a ZFS pool, a data pool snapshot to an external encrypted hard drive that I could then remove from the computer to keep it at an off-site location? I would also need to periodically plug it back in for backups without any hassle. Backing up the increment changes would be great. What do you suggest? Love the shows. In fact, I love all the JB shows for that matter. Thanks. Him all right yeah. in the RC. It's a little harder to answer the question when you don't have the actual error message. I wish people would always copy and paste the actual error message. But, yeah, just um, store it in a notepad doc or a text edit <laughs> yeah. doc or a gedit uh, doc. When you're doing the ZFS send, there's a flag, uh, minus I, or capital I. Uh, when you say minus I, you give the name of the snapshot that's already on the destination, and then you do pool that data set at the new snapshot name. So you do ZFS send minus I yesterday, and then the name of the pool, whatever, at today, and then pipe ZFS receive, and it sends only the differences between yesterday and today, and the other side receives that. And that's how you do incremental. Uh, the other thing is make sure you don't create multiple different snapshots with the same name. Like if you create a snapshot called backup and then send it over there and then delete it and create a new one called backup, it gets very confusing, right? So always have unique names for your snapshots. Yeah. But yeah, uh, nor if you don't do incremental when you do, an, when you do the second send, it try, it wants to dis, you'd have to destroy the old snapshot and basically or destroy the whole data set completely and then send the new one over. Uh, and you'd have to do some extra stuff to make it clean up or whatever. Uh, but ideally, you want to use the incremental to avoid sending data that's already on the other drive, right? Uh, so, yeah, I think what you were missing was the minus I flag and indicating the name of the old snapshot and then the name of the new snapshot. Uh, the capital I flag is slightly different in that it sends every snapshot in between the two. So if you take a snapshot once a day and your drive's been off-site for a week, then if you do minus I you know, the snapshot, the newest snapshot that's on the external drive, and then they set at the newest snapshot of today, uh, if you do minus I, it'll only send the, it'll send all the changes as one snapshot. But if you do capital I, it'll send each of the incremental snapshots in between. So now your backup drive contains um, each of those snapshots so that you can go back, you know, if it turns out after you send that, you know, you've done your backup, uh, goes off-site, week later it comes back, you do the backup to add the extra week of snapshots, you send it off-site, and then two days later, you realize your file's been broken for three days, and you need to go back, you can actually do that if you keep all the older snapshots on your external drive as well. Eventually, you'll have to delete some snapshots to make uh, space for newer ones. But deleting snapshots in the middle usually doesn't save you much space. You just delete the oldest one, and you get that space back. It really depends on your workload, how much space you'll get back. Uh, but ZFS destroy minus V and minus N. The minus N makes it not actually delete it. But with the minus V, it'll tell you how much space you would get back. So you can also uh, try it out. Uh, but for more on actually doing ZFS replication, check out FreeBSD Mastery Advanced ZFS. It explains how to do the replication stuff. It's all ZFS agnostic, so it'll work fine on uh, the Debian that Proxmox uses mm. as well. Mm. The ZFS okay. commands are the same on every operating system. It's only the non-ZFS stuff that might be slightly different. Like, obviously, the setup of encryption with Geli is different on BSD than what your Lux is on your, on your Debian and Proxmox, but the ZFS commands are the same, so the book is still quite useful uh, to somebody using Linux. Okay. 
Uh, thank you, Ryan. And uh, thank you, everybody, for sending your emails. And we've got one more email in the uh, kitty for next week, so we need more. Techsnap mm-hmm. at jupiterbroadcasting.com or go to just jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, and we have a form you can fill in there. So that way you don't have to worry about that dirty web mail. You just send it right in there, and uh, we'll answer it in next week's episode. With the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read on your own after the show, and some of these links came from our community over at techsnap.reddit.com, we want to cover them right here with you. This first one made me go, what? Hijacking YouTube to transmit data. This is really kind yeah. of an interesting post. Yeah, so the researcher found, him in the, found himself in a position where the corporate firewall didn't let him access the file he wanted to download, <laughs> but he could watch YouTube just fine. Sure. It was like, could I hide the file in a YouTube video? And he started playing with it and figured out how it worked. Yeah. Uh, he talks about... So you scroll down, there's a diagram, I think. Do, 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 do. That there. guy right there? Yeah. yeah. So hiding information in frames and then shows how it actually does encryption so that the data is not just raw exposed in the frames. Yeah. Yeah, and and pretty pretty interesting. So as long as he can upload a video at home or something, he can put the file in there, and then download it yep. at work. Huh? It's a great way for spies to send messages is to hide them in cat videos on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Nobody would ever suspect it. Plus, it'd be kind of difficult to to find. So this is interesting. This is preparing to ban SMS-based two-factor authentication. Uh, yes. I don't know what exactly they're switching to, but it seems like well, a big so th- move. Well, so this is a. Uh, they have a. Uh, They published this document that defines what is considered secure by the government. Uh, And they're saying that SMS-based authentication is not good enough because of a couple of reasons. A, as we saw like three years ago with that story in Australia, somebody can call up your phone company, pretend to be you, and switch your phone number to their phone, Mm -hmm. right? Or swap out SIM cards or whatever, which means that your two-factor authentication goes to the attacker who now uses it, gets into your bank account, and steals the entire value of your mortgage out of your bank account, which can hurt a little bit, right? (laughs) Um, and so on. Other ones are um, when you lose your phone or whatever or you want to disable two-factor authentication or change the phone number that your two-factor authentication uses, how do you do that? Um, in particular, you can't use SMS authentication to verify changing your phone number because usually you're doing this at the step where you've already changed your phone number, right? Mm-hmm. You don't normally know your phone, new phone number until you, your phone, that's your only phone number. <laughs> yep. And so you can't send the two-factor out to the old phone and uh, a lot of times this is a way to get around two-factor auth is by tricking the company support people into changing the, the number that SMS uses to a different number. And so they, uh, the NIST uh, standard will require if you want to change the number f- that is used for two-factor auth, you have to verify the two-factor token out-of-band and that out-of-band can't be SMS and a bunch of other things. So basically, as we know, SMS is not good enough. You know, we need something more like Google Authenticator that's actually an application. And uh, because SMS is just a public phone network and there's too many ways to spoof it and fake it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, in, in addition to the news story, there's a PDF there from NIST that has all the gory details. 
The next story in the round probably has uh, a lot of our audience uh, on the edge of their seats a little bit. A lot of people right now in the chat room have been talking about it. It's going on a couple of links in our subreddit. It's this LastPass flaw that came out recently. And in the roundup, we've linked to the uh, Project Zero, Chromium, whatever it is, mailing yes, so, list. Uh, this is uh, Travis Ormandy, who's written lots of these Project Zero things at yeah. Google. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was going after the antivirus companies recently. He, right? he's ta- he, he's, he, he literally, Alan, he tweeted like at 4 p.m., hey, I think I'm going to look into LastPass. And then like by 8 p.m., he had found a pretty significant flaw. <laughs> and I guess this is it. The uh, the frame communicates with the atom by posting messages to the window, and the event handler on the window determines if it's trusted or not by checking the origin. But that does not make sense because the window belongs to the attacker, so they can just insert their own event handler before yours and modify legitimate messages. Why I link to the mailing list uh, thread, though, is because it's interesting to see his correspondence with LastPass because he, go, he, just, go, he just published it. Uh, he says, LastPass quickly confirmed the issue, uh, the vulnerable code, and they said that it qualifies for the cash reward and said if you want to uh, sign up for an account, you know, he could get cash compensation. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, then later on, after they'd fixed it within you know just a few hours, LastPass was right on top of it, they sent him a preview release build to verify that it worked. Uh, and then he asked them to donate the, the uh, cash reward to Amnesty International. Yep. So, and then uh, LastPass, that's the next story, has a sufi- has an official uh, blog post about it. I guess they've already pushed a fix out to the extension. Mm-hmm. It only affected Firefox too, I believe. Right. So they ran. Oh, yeah, I imagine maybe only Chrome because it was in the Chrome. Uh, yeah, I thought so too. Tracker, I thought so not. too. But when you go through the when you go through the uh, the thread, they talk about how it only. Well, I think pushed. it's just. Project Zero only uses their own bug tracker. So yeah, that's, that's probably what it is. Uh, yeah. But yes, I, um, that's another interesting trend I've seen with the bug bounties. Is uh, I know Google, if you get a bug bounty from Google and you donate it to a nonprofit, they actually double the bounty. That's cool. Yeah. That's great. Because uh, uh, I know uh, some FreeBSD people have uh, redirected theirs to the FreeBSD Foundation and it gets doubled that way. And nice. Win for everybody. Yeah. Uh, so this next story kind of made me giggle. I, I'm surprised. I'm surprised I hadn't heard about this earlier um, until today. But uh, GO, GOP delegates who went to the convention were suckered into connecting to insecure Wi-Fi hotspots. Somebody was laying down hotspots and seeing what they could find out. Yeah, uh, apparently this was actually uh, done by Avast, the yeah. antivirus company. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and they they posted some stats too. Uh, they posted some stats about the type of sites that the people went to, the, ty- the different types of Wi-Fi networks they were most likely to connect to, like the ones that said "Vote Hillary" were uh, much less used. <laughs> yeah, but I love the ones that say uh, "Google Starbucks" or yes. "Xfinity Wi-Fi" or yeah. "ACT Wi-Fi." Yeah, <laughs> yes, the one that I vote Trump free internet and I vote Hillary free internet. Fifty-five point nine percent had an Apple device. Twenty-eight point four had an Android device, and one point five had a Windows phone. Three point four percent had a MacBook laptop, and ten point nine percent had a different device. Thirteen point one percent accessed Yahoo Mail. Seventeen point six was uh, checked Gmail. Only four point two percent visited government domains or websites. Five point one percent played Pokemon Go. And uh, 0.24% visited uh, Pornhub and others. And 0.7, Tinder and Grindr and OkCupid match and meetup type sites. Meetup isn't a dating site. Yeah. Um, what would be interesting, though, is if they had pulled off the same thing at the, the DNC. Democrat one yeah. and see if there's a difference. I hope they do. Was In particular, comparing uh, percentage of Yahoo versus Gmail versus WhatsApp yeah. and Android and I, iPhone. And I'm stuff. kind of wondering, it's like, is the, does the GOP uh, skew more towards Yahoo? Because <laughs> y- 
there's certain conclusions you can draw about somebody that still that has a Yahoo email address. <laughs> a lot of that is they've been using the internet for longer. Yeah, sure. But true. also it usually means they're not that skilled or they would have switched to Gmail, right? Maybe they're a Marissa Mayer fan. Yeah. Uh, I know you can uh, breathe a sigh of relief knowing that uh, the uh, original Kick-Ass Torrents community is back online, only without Torrents. So there was, of course, a shutdown, but uh, employees have grouped together. They came together and they've launched a website for loyal fans called Catcr. K K A T C R dot C O. Torrents Community Revived or whatever. K A T C R dot C O. Yeah. Uh, so I'm guessing this is just bringing back the forum that a lot of people use there. Yes. I guess. Yes. I guess it's a start for them. Yeah. Uh, how, here's a Tinder story. Tinder safe dating spam uses safety to scam users out of money. Money? What? Yes. What? So this was uh, it would send a message to people claiming that it was uh, a way to verify your account on Tinder to get a little star to improve your your hit rate. On, <laughs> okay. On the dinner. and actually what it did was uh, take your credit card and sign you up for a, a hundred and eighteen dollar a month porn site. Oh, whoa, jeez, whoa, that's a little ridiculous. Which I'm sure was really easy to cancel and discontinue. I'm sure it was no problem. <laughs> nice. Going after people that are, are just trying to get a little uh, little love yeah. in their life. You, you, you want the verified account star, kind of yeah. like on Twitter. That's hard to get, right? This is interesting. So how about uh, finally figuring out the keys to some ransomware, and the people that do it, they're a rival crime gang, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so earlier this year, uh, this is coming from uh, another another group. We I got access to parts of their development system, included parts of the Chimera in our project. We incorporated that. I, additionally, we now have released 3,500 decryption keys from Chimera. Researchers and advice providers malware bytes document in December that Chimera not only encrypts user data, but it also threatens to publish the data in plain text in the event the victim fails to pay the ransom. Now, I don't know if this is a particular story, but there's another story uh, we saw go by where ransomware that uh, you pay the ransom and then it didn't decrypt the files at all. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, we, did, we, we just randomized your files. We didn't actually encrypt them because uh, then it was unbreakable, right? But now then, you know, you see, you're going to get other guys that are working on this kind of software to come after you. Because legitimately, that's yeah, making crimeware ransomware. If, yeah, they're not. Nobody's going to pay for their ransomware if they don't think it's going to decrypt the files. They're only going to pay if they think they're going to get their files back. Yeah, it's like if, if you're getting the kidnapping business, <laughs> if you kill all the people you kidnap, you're really not going to get anybody to pay yeah. anymore. <laughs> nobody's going to pay for that. Okay, I've heard the story go by, but I just couldn't bear to read it. Pop stars tell fans to send their Twitter passwords, but that might be illegal. I, I saw this. What is this? Yeah, so so apparently some pop star I've never heard of called Jack and Jack or something. Sounds like a serial. Uh, yeah. He wanted, uh, he, he tried to start a Twitter trending thing of a, like hacked by Jack or something. And uh, so he would get his fans to- Hacked by uh, Johnson, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. Something like that. And uh, so <laughs> you, old would, man. you would send- uh, him your password. He would log into your Twitter account and post a message of, from him from your account, but with this hashtag. And you know, it'd be like thousands of accounts got hacked by this guy, or whatever, right? Uh, but so the pop it turns star out that might actually be uh, illegal under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Yeah, I think using so. Using someone else's account is, uh, and so with many violations, he could be, uh, you know, with the way they abuse the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, I would expect him to go to prison for a very long time. I'm sure he won't because he's a celebrity, but, uh, you know, that's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is so vague that you, you know, you could easily get away with sandbagging this guy. 
I just I'm looking at this guy. He posted a video. I could, it's a stupid publicity stunt. Oh, yeah. uh, okay, here's another but one. It would be really funny if you went to jail for it. So Windows 10's got an anniversary update coming for you, everybody. And part of that is uh, they're replacing Search with Cortana. So no more disabling Cortana for you, which is kind of a bummer. Um, they even say as much. Microsoft does. With the Windows 10 anniversary update, the search box is now Cortana. Now, there are ways you can reduce your involvement with Cortana. Uh, like not signing into your Microsoft account is is one of them. But then, uh, like Skype, you can't use Skype at that point, right? Or the store. You have to sign into or, Skype. Or the or store anything. or sync yeah. your settings. But if you like, you can also just hide Cortana. <laughs> right, on, in the so taskbar She's still getting all your data, but you're not getting the usefulness of her. Yeah. Is that what they're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, Bug Bounty uh, found Vine source code in plain sight. A hunter for a bug bounty, I should say, found yes. Vine source code in plain Turns sight. Turns out they published a Docker image uh, that they use internally to actually run their site. So it's full of their source code. And they accidentally posted it publicly instead of privately in the Docker majigger. Uh, and yeah, so anybody can see the source code for Vine. For uh, luckily, the uh, bounty hunter found it and uh, told them, and they got it taken down within a couple minutes of that. It's like, <laughs> whoops! <laughs> giving away all the secrets. Okay, I don't really know much on this one, but it, it's like one of these where the company might be revealing something they didn't intend to, and so now they're in more trouble. Uh, Yahoo has been ordered to show how it recovered deleted emails. Now, the problem is that the emails that it recovered, supposedly, were outside what its stated policy for retention are. Right. So, uh, Yahoo's policy is if the email's still in your account uh, and they get a subpoena or whatever, they will give it to the police. Uh, but... Uh, Part of their policy is if you delete an email, we can't get it back. I imagine the point of that policy is just to st avoid getting asked all the time to undelete emails, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Like a user accidentally deleted an email or whatever and comes whining to you. So you just policy, we don't do that. Uh, but, you know, when the government asks you, maybe you try a little harder to undelete that email. Well, here's what's fascinating about that. So the, the defense is like, well, this, is, this violates their policy. Now we want a motion for discovery to find out how they got that. Yeah. And if there is, who knows what that will reveal. It's, well, it's basically, you can't expect Yahoo doesn't back up their servers in case something breaks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you deleted that email, but at some point that email wasn't deleted and it's in their backup somewhere. Now, while it's their policy not to go get it, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure being compelled by the government means that they kind of have to do everything reasonable. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, if the user thought that it was deleted and destroyed, then, uh, you know, the government maybe shouldn't have access to it or whatever. Mm -hmm. but this is why, again, you get down to if you host your own email, you don't have this problem. The problem is not everybody can host their own email. In, in this case, drug dealers don't know to host their own email, apparently. <laughs> I like this news story, Alan, because this next this next story, I mean, there's very few sounds out there that really define my childhood, like the dial-up tone, uh, and I like this visualization. Have we shown this before, this visualization? So this one, if you actually click on it, it gets bigger. It enhances and zooms? Yeah, it actually shows okay, I'm going the, in. Uh, different parts of uh, what the different sounds were and the order they're happening and what they're actually doing at that phase. You know, you can see... You, the modem picks up and waits for the dial tone to know that the line's not busy. And then it types DTMF to actually send the numbers. And then there's the delay where you actually make a connection. And then you get the, the chirp from the other side that was added so that um, if a person accidentally called the modem, they didn't get the full blast right away. Mm. Uh, you know, they added that chirp and only 
when you hear the chirp, the other side acknowledges, hey, I'm a modem too, and they start modeming each other. <laughs> hey, I'm a modem. Hi. <laughs> if you remember, like 14 fours, if somebody called your modem, they got the full screech in the yeah. face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can see that happening, and then you see the different bits, and then it talks about how it does the echo cancellation stuff. Mm-hmm. So the regular phone line system was designed where most times both people aren't talking at once, right? So when you're talking, it it mutes the other side. It's very, you know, only if they really say something does it actually come through so that you don't hear the echo that might come back of yourself. Uh, for modems, that doesn't work because they both want to talk in both directions at the same time. Uh, so the modems do a certain dance that makes the phone company know, hey, no, don't do echo cancellation on this call. Hmm. And then you see the modems commuti- uh, deciding what rate they can sync at by, you know, dealing with any static that's there and working around everything. And Anyway, it explains the whole process, and I found it pretty interesting. It came up the other day, I don't know, uh, the, the secret FreeBSD chat room is full of old people talking about the good old days. Sometimes, sometimes uh, I miss that a little bit. Uh, for some weird reason, and, and I, the gigabit at my house makes me yeah, yeah, a lot. That, I know I, yeah. that thirteen three uh, Sportster modem that was my crowning ownership thing. It's like <laughs> I spent every dollar I had. It was like three hundred and something dollars for this thirty three six modem. With like the day it came out, I had to buy it at a trade show. Hey, you know what, Alan? It's only appropriate if we sort of end the show with a bit of a retro Bitcoin blaster, and that is this story here. A Florida judge says that Bitcoins are not currency, so money laws don't apply. Of course, that helped a Miami man who sold via localbitcoins.com when an undercover cop targeted him. The Florida... In particular, my problem with this case seems to be that it was basically a sting operation set out to go after anybody doing anything with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to say it was bad because we told them we were going to use the Bitcoins to buy drugs or whatever. Whereas otherwise the Bitcoin transaction is, is perfectly legal. But yeah. because it was to do with drugs, it was like this guy wasn't buying drugs with them. He was just selling you the Bitcoins. He didn't care what you were going to do with them. Yeah. Uh, I so, buy hardware with Bitcoin, so... <laughs> yeah, I would say that in the end, um, you know, I'm sure that eventually this ruling would be overturned and they would decide that Bitcoins yeah. are money. It's just that it has huge uh, tax but, ramifications yeah. if that's true. Uh, in particular, they're saying that you can't be accused of money laundering with Bitcoins because they're actually not worth anything, which is kind of true because they're really all over the damn place. <laughs> right now, they're $659.26, US dollars. not that I'm watching. But that's right now. All right, that's the end of the TechSnap program. We'd love to have you join us live on a Thursday. We do this at 1 p.m. Pacific over jblive.tv, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Boom. We also do it at jblive.fm if you just need an audio version. Maybe you're like token ring in the chat room. And apparently your connection is so bad, the only thing that works is audio. Well, good news. We even make jblive.am which is even lower bandwidth, which is really great if you're driving and having some connection dropouts and still want to get that live text app going. JBLive.tv is where you go to get the embedded chat room, too. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar is where you go to get it converted to your local time zone. And none of that matters if you just want to watch it whenever the hell you please. You just get the download version over JupiterBroadcasting.com and subscribe to the RSS feed. And if you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up and leave us a comment about what you think, because we also don't mention the YouTube audience that often on the TechSnap program. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 